I am fantasy author Elle Penelope, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes at an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello friends, today is Friday, May 31st, 2019, and this is episode 16 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. I am a little bit frazzled this week, so I apologize if I'm a little more um, rambly and going off on tangents than normal because my brain is a little bit... And it's only 10.58 a.m. right now. So usually I'm fresh in the morning, but um, I had I made the mistake of checking my work email before I did this. And um, there's some people that you have communication issues with. Like there was this one person, I guess she's the project manager and um, of this project I'm working on. And she never and seems to understand what I'm saying. And I never seem to understand what she's saying. So our communication styles have some sort of, you know, inherent problem with them. And um, reading three emails from her just makes my mind melt. So I'm a little bit frazzled. But let's get into this week's best thing, which um, was the new Sleater Kinney song. So Sleater Kinney is my favorite band. Um, Unlike when people ask me, what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite book? And I'm kind of like, oh, it depends when you ask me or a hem and haw. If someone asks me who my favorite band is, it's always Slater Kinney. Uh, no question. And uh, if you don't know, they're a rock band um, and three girls. So now, <laughs> you know, like I've been listening to them for over 20 years, I guess. And at this point, you know, a middle-aged woman rock band, but they're still awesome, you know, like... I suppose the whole idea of middle age is is weird to me because technically, I guess once you hit your 40s, you're in the middle age, but I've never accepted that. Like, I don't consider myself to be middle aged. I don't know when that will happen. Maybe when I'll hit 50, uh, I will I will feel that way. And so I don't think of people who are my age and they're a little older than me. I'm not actually sure how old they are. But anyway, Cedar Kinney had a new song. Um, they had gone on hiatus for a while and they came back about four years ago with a new album. And now it seems like they're going to have a new album. Video directed by Miranda July, who is um, another person who I love, stuff that she does. She has a movie called Me and You and Everyone We Know, which is one of my top 10 movies of all time. I have her short story collection, um, which is No One Belongs Here More Than You, which is a really cool short story collection. And she does like super quirky, super artsy, super indie stuff that is not for everybody, but apparently it's for me. So she directed this video. It's online. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I just liked it a lot. Best thing. And I'm wearing my Sleater Kinney t-shirt if you're on the video feed. One of my, one of my t-shirts, just in honor of new music from them and me being very excited about that. Um, also, if you're on video behind me, I switched out Baby Groot for um, Neo Matrix. I have a little Neo figurine that I got when I bought many, many years ago. And I bought the DVDs of uh, the Matrix series. And it goes with my tattoo, which um, I have a tattoo that says there is no spoon on my forearm, my inner arm. Um, yeah, I'm a Matrix fan. The first Matrix, the second and the third one don't really exist for me. I've only ever seen them like once each, but you know, I've seen the original Matrix. I can't countless times, literally countless. I saw it five times in the theaters in 1999. And I missed the um, 20th anniversary, which was earlier this year, of the Matrix. And so um, this is my <laughs> – I moved him into the rotation, my Neo figurine, uh, in honor of that. I don't have a lot of – I don't collect, like, stuff. I don't collect figurines and what are those things with the bobbleheads or the popos. I don't know what they're called. 
Um, I don't collect stuff, but I just, some stuff I have, like I have a baby group <laughs> and I have a Neo figurine and I have like, I used to have a Cylon, um, from my, when I bought the, um, Battlestar Galactica box set, but that seems to have disappeared. So if that pops up, maybe that'll come into the rotation too. So I, I got the tattoo, um, because, you know, if you're, if you don't remember in the movie, um, Neo goes to see the Oracle and there's a little bald headed white boy with a spoon and he's able to bend it with his mind. And Neo, you know, is like, how do you do that? And he's like, you know, you can't try to bend the spoon. That is impossible. Um, what you have to realize is there is no spoon and it's you who has to change basically to paraphrase. And, um, that was just a really powerful kind of philosophy. It fit in with the way I grew up thinking, like I grew up in a very metaphysical religious tradition. So the idea that there is no spoon sort of just means to me that um, I'm the one who has to change, that my mindset and then the way I view the world is the most important thing. And that you, you can sort of be a powerful creator of the world via your mindset and via your approach and how you look at it. So everything that appears to be real is not. Um, and I still, as I've gone through ups and downs with um, belief and faith, that is something that still is true to me. And so I got the tattoo. It's my th- It was my third one, um, maybe 10, no, less than 10 years ago. Uh, and it, it still holds true. And so I think about that, it kind of go back and, and ground myself, especially uh, weeks like this have just been a very trying week. It's been a very stressful week. Um, stress level is ratcheting up again, mostly because of work stuff, not because of writing stuff. But yeah, holding fast to the idea that I get to choose, you know, I get to choose my responses. Um, like the quote I mentioned several episodes ago, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. It's kind of the same idea, like our responses and our outlooks and our uh, way that we, the things that we can control inside of ourselves are are very powerful and not to lose sight of that, which I think is very important. Anyway, this week um, in writing, I have been plotting book four of the Earthsinger Chronicles, as I will be for a while. I do... So today's the 31st. I'd wanted to have, you know, an outline done by today. I do not have an outline done today. I, I didn't get a chance to work on it yesterday. I did work on it most of the week, though. I came to some really cool realizations, though. Like every day, I learn a little bit more about it, which is fantastic. And it's, um, you know, so I know I'm getting there. I'm, I'm digging through um, and continuing to discover more about it. I started doing character stuff um, last week, and that that went into this week. And so I'm kind of going back and forth between high level plotting and character development. I don't do deep, deep character development at this stage because I don't know them yet. I need to know just enough to do the first fast draft or the zero draft. And so, um, as I like to jump around uh, this week, I started using the Dramatica tab of my multi-tab spreadsheet. And um, okay, so Dramatica is a system of like a story theory, I guess, that I looked at a few years ago, because I'm the type of person I love learning about new plotting systems and theories and books. And so I was like, oh, Dramatica, I heard about it. There's a website, which is Dramatica.com. I don't think I read it. I didn't buy any books about it, but I read a bunch of articles. 
Now, I have a high tolerance for plotting systems, for learning things, for, you know, I have my, my spreadsheet is actually 10 tabs. I think I said it was nine. I counted this week. I have a 10 tab spreadsheet of different ways to approach plot and character. I have a big plate for this. And I found my limit with Dramatica. I tried Dramatica for a month, maybe four or five years ago, and it broke my brain. It is insanely complex. There's so many like parts to it and types of characters and and there's a software that you can that you can use. So I downloaded the free trial of the software. It's for Mac and PC, if you're interested. And I tried to put a story through it and I they it prints out things and it it yeah, that was the end. I've I reached my limit. I I can go this far and no further. And I backed away. But from that experience, I did manage to pull out something that I salvaged, and which is what they call pro- plot appreciations or plot thematics. And this is the tab of my spreadsheet that I use the least. Um, but it so happened that this week I was impelled to go and check it out. So basically, it's eight steps. And um, there was an article that I'll link to that um, about outlining that does a really good job of describing what it is. So the eight steps are for each basically plot line, um, the goal of the story, the consequences. So what happens if the goal is not met? Um, So like in Star Wars, you know, okay, so the goal, I guess, is to defeat the Empire. Is that the goal for the first movie for A New Hope? I'd say the goal is to to reestablish democracy in the galaxy. I think that's probably the goal. And then, so if the goal isn't reached, then the empire continues to subjugate people, which are the consequences. Um, The requirements, number three, what needs to uh, be accomplished in order to reach the goal. So if if you put the goal is reestablishing democracy in the galaxy, then the requirements are you have to get rid of the empire, get rid of the emperor, get rid of Darth Vader, you know, fight a battle, conquer them. Those are the requirements to meet the goal. Number four is forewarnings, which... um, making the reader anxious that the that the consequences will be achieved. So for forewarnings of Star Wars, you know, blowing up Alderaan would be one. You know, any interaction that you have with the Empire that is that is negative. Um, you know, Darth Vader killing Obi-Wan. Number five is costs. So the sacrifices that must be endured to reach the goal. So maybe Obi-Wan is a cost, you know, losing if we're looking at Luke as the main character and this is through his POV arguably, I guess, um, then, you know, losing his mentor is a cost. Uh, losing his hand is a cost. Um, number number six is dividends. So it balances the cost. What are the benefits of striving towards the goal? So they could be unrelated to it, but um, dividends, I think, would be Luke learning, um, you know, about that he's Force-sensitive the good things that happen, meeting Leia, meeting Han, developing these friendships and relationships, um, getting off Tatooine, which is a goal of his. So that's a dividend. Number seven is prerequisites, things that have to happen in order to, um, in order for the requirements to happen and their challenges. So before, if the requirements are you have to, um, you have to battle the emperor and overthrow the emperor, I guess, kill the emperor, then the prerequisites are you have to find the rebels and have an army and have a, you know, and, and these things you have to get together uh, in order to, you know, so the prerequisites could be in order to get off Tatooine, you have to find someone with a ship. So you have to go. So that, those types of things. And then eight is preconditions. 
And they are small plot impediments that hinder each the goal. So, um, and maybe preconditions. And, th- and that's when it gets a little bit like you have to kind of figure out on your own. Like maybe a precondition is, okay, to get off Tatooine, we have to find a ship. Um, and so we have to go to Maz Eisley or whatever and, you know, find someone who can fly us out of here so that we can then meet. Uh, that's the precondition to getting to the prerequisite to the requirement. <laughs> I might be making it sound more complicated, and maybe it is a little complicated because Dramatica, and this is just one tiny piece of Dramatica, but I was getting stuck in terms of um, the another plotting system that I was using. I had a lot of holes in it. So I was like, okay, this is a good way to kind of get back to the basics and say, what do we want? In order to get what we want, what has to happen? In order for those things to happen, what has to happen? And really digging through. And so I did that for five um, yeah, five plot lines for book four. And it really helps focus me. I still have questions and I still have some holes, but I figured out a lot by going through that. And so, um, that was great. I also pulled out some other worksheets from, um, some character worksheets and decided that I need to know more about the characters in the novella, which I'm still going to write first. Um, I did the dramatica thing for the novella also. And um, then I was like, I don't know quite enough about these characters. So I figured out the character Enneagrams, which is like a personality type. It's sort of like a Myers-Briggs. And um, that allowed me, you know, I already knew their goals and their conflicts, but it allowed me to dig deeper and um, into their personalities so that I can start figuring out what they do. So once I know what they want and who they are, you know, on a high level, then I can start saying, well, how are they going to um, meet this challenge? How are they going to react to this conflict? It's based on their goals and their motivation and their fear and their wound and all that other character stuff that I have to figure out. So that's kind of where I've been this week. Um, yeah, like doing those character sheets and, and, and the character sheets that I'm using are still high level. Like I don't, even when I've tried to do like a detailed character interview, like what they have for breakfast, you know, what's the greatest fear from when they were five? Like I never finished those because those are a lot and I'm just making stuff up and it doesn't mean anything. Um, which is why if I'm going to go into more detail, it's after I've done the fast draft when I know them better, you know? So now I'm just kind of, I'm getting the things that can't change, but, um, I don't want to say they can't change because sometimes they do. Sometimes I, I realize that, oh, that motivation isn't this, you know, like I have this, you know, my main character for this novella, she's going to be ambitious and um, she has a wound in her past. She's felt abandoned by her parents. And so that's, she's trying to make the most of where she is now and be, gain acceptance through achievement. And so that feels very solid to me right now. Um and, but sometimes that does shift and change as I write it and as I get into it and I discover more things about the character. Like another in another totally different book that is not finished yet, um, I discovered at one point that the character was claustrophobic. And it was really interesting because I had written, and this was after maybe two drafts, because I had written her going into this elevator and there was a sense of unease in the elevator. But I wasn't consciously aware of her being claustrophobic until later. I was like, oh, well, I actually had the seeds of that in a previous draft. It just wasn't at the forefront of mind. So then I went back and I was like, okay, she's claustrophobic. Why? Oh, because of some trauma in her past where she was like locked in a 
Foot Locker for some reason. And so that that informs that item of the past, where which I didn't know before. You know, so I could have um, given her some kind of random traumas up front and then worked that way, but it worked better, at least in that instance. And I feel like this is kind of the way I do it, that once I do that fast draft, it fills in character details and I, I can then go back to a deeper character study, knowing more about them based on I've I've followed them through some actions. And so it's based in what I've written. And then it kind of, it goes back and forth. So each uh, subsequent draft, as I'm filling in more details, I'm learning more about them. I'm filling in more backstory in my mind, in the story Bible that can, that I can move forward. And so that's why my process is very layered and um, not fast (laughs) at all. But that's all progressing. Um, And so Reworking my schedule. I'm going to spend the weekend doing some more work and coming up with at least a bare bones outline of the um, novella and then fast draft it next week or at least start it. I'm going to see if I can do it all in a week because if it's a 25,000 word uh, book approximately, my fast draft will be something like 12, 13,000 words, which I can fast draft two, 3,000 words a day. So Maybe I can get it done next week. I think that should be my goal. I mean, fast as in fast, like just get it out of me and then I'll know. And that draft will probably sit. I won't be able, I won't go back and polish it until after I do book four. Um, Really, I think (laughs) right now. I also came across this um, article that was in The Guardian about, um, it's called Watched Plots, like a watched plot doesn't boil, which doesn't say that, but I think that's the pun they were going for. Um, just about different authors on their takes of <sighs> taking a long time to finish their series. Um, they talked to George Martin, they talked to Philip Pullman um, from The Golden Compass, and I read The Golden Compass. I didn't read any of the other books in that series, but um, I'm looking forward to the like an HBO version of it. I liked the movie that came out, tangent, um, but I hadn't read the book before I saw the movie. So I saw the movie first and then I went back and read the book. And um, I don't know. For me, when I when I see a movie first, the movie, you know, is the thing. So then the, if, when the book is very different and if I enjoyed the movie, then it's hard for me to get into the book, which means I should read the book first. When I do that, the movie is always ruined. Like the Harry Potter movies for me, eh, because I read all the books first and they were just so much better. Um, anyway, back to this article that I read, like I said, tangents. I thought that um, it was really interesting what Philip Pullman says. There was a quote that um, I thought was cool. He goes that, because apparently it's taken him a long time to get back into that world uh, after, it says 17 years before returning to his dark materials world. And so um, he goes, maybe I'm thick skinned, but I've always felt that what I do when I'm writing is none of the reader's business. And I was like, yeah, it's savage. <laughs> um, he says, any pressure I felt when coming towards the end of a trilogy or a novel is entirely self-generated. And it takes the form as always of wanting to discover what the story is and then tell it as clearly as I can. And um, from publication onwards, my view of what it means or says has no more authority than the readers. It's a political difference in a way. Writing is despotic. Reading is democratic. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. 
um, just because I'm ending the series, not that anyone has been waiting for it. Well, if you read the self-published versions and you have been waiting a long time, and I apologize, uh, because book two, the, you know, the self-published version of book two came out in 2015, and book three is not coming out till 2020. But um, definitely reread book two because I changed a lot. Um, but yeah, not on this scale, obviously, but on a very tiny scale and, and not, it wasn't really about people waiting for stuff. For me, this article was interesting just in terms of approaching, you know, that and, and not, you know, obviously Philip Pullman doesn't care. <laughs> like he says, it's none of your reader, the reader's business what I'm doing when I'm writing. I know a lot of self-publishers are, since they're, since when we self-publish, we have a lot more direct contact with the readers um, when someone picks up the book in a bookstore, we have no idea. They may or may not sign up for the newsletter. But um, if someone is on Amazon and they sign up for the newsletter in the back and then, you know, you, you're in contact with them then you, and you're on social media, you hear from people. And so um, I know that a lot of successful self-publishers feel beholden to the audience for certain things and um, writing what people want to read, writing, you know, people are begging for this book from this character, and I'm going to give it to him doing that. And there's a, you have to balance that, I think, that um, because I can see how that could stifle you a lot, and it could <sighs> cause a lot of, of pressure that is detrimental to the creative process. And um, so, yeah, trying to keep that pressure internal, and all my pressure is internal, you know, plus the deadline that is external from the publishing company. But um, it's it's all internal. But I and I also agree that what I put into it and what a reader gets from it have to be completely separate things. Like once it's in the world, it's the readers now, and um, and it belongs to them. When I was in film school, one of um, the professors, he was a grad student, and he actually was my DP for my final project, he would make these super artsy films that nobody knew what they meant. And then the screening, people would be like, what were you trying to say? And he was like, what do you think I was trying to say? And it was all very frustrating at the time. But, you know, like, I get it. Like, you can't always explain what you're doing. Like, once you've put it out there, it's like, it's the audiences. And to a certain degree, what you are trying to do is not relevant because what they get out of it is what's relevant. And we're not in control of that. You know, I've seen uh, reviews of mine of Song of Blood and Stone that bear no resemblance to the book that I wrote, but that's the book that they read and what they saw in it. And they are allowed to have that, you know, like it's theirs now. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of thinking about that, um, taking pressure off of myself, uh, whatever internal pressure that I've put on to. You know, I, I, I think it's important to tell a satisfying story. I think it's important to follow these kind of structural rules, quote unquote. Because um, we can see from Game of Thrones, when you throw out certain rules and expectations, there is, you don't leave people feeling satisfied. Um, so there's a balance between, you know, telling a, a well-structured, satisfying story and a story that makes people happy. And I can't control how people are going to respond to it, so... Um, it was just that, that is there, like that is inside of me that as much as I want to, um, ensure, you know, a satisfying ending for readers who have stuck through me through this whole series and I'm working towards that, I just have to maintain the distance from those sorts of pressures and 
even though even when they're only really coming from myself, if that makes any sense. So that is what I've been thinking about this week. Um, this weekend, I will really just dig down, try to come up with some kind of outline, even if it's just a one-page bullet list outline um, for the novella so that I can fast draft next week. And I will let you know how it goes. Um, so until then, happy reading. For episode show notes and to learn more about me and my books, go to lpenelope.com. Subscribe to My Imaginary Friends wherever you get your podcasts and check out the video episodes on YouTube. Please leave a rating and review to help support the show. <laughs>